It's Wednesday, December 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Samuel Little, the most prolific serial killer in the U.S., died at the end of last year and had confessed to a slew of murders that had yet to be closed. Many of those murders took place in the Los Angeles area, leaving detectives chasing ghosts as they try to connect the dots and corroborate the killings. There is one final push for any information in these cases, as one of the lead investigators is retiring this month, and any evidence and confessions are hard to verify because of time and changing cityscapes. James Queeley, criminal justice reporter at the LA Times, joins us for more. Next, we'll take a look at one woman's path through rehab as she tries to fight the effects of long COVID. Samantha Lewis got COVID in October 2020 and has been dealing with issues such as brain fog, fatigue, balance issues, and more since then. She had to reduce time at work and place reminders in her house of even the simplest tasks such as brushing her teeth to get by. She was finally on the path to recovery after seeing doctors at Northwestern Medical Hospital's NeuroCOVID-19 Clinic in Chicago, who recommended cognitive rehab. Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times, joins us for how Samantha is doing a year later. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The FBI, in conjunction with the Texas Rangers, they released summaries of 31 of Little's confessions that have not been able to be corroborated by local law enforcement, and more than half of those are in Los Angeles. Joining us now is James Queeley, criminal justice reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, James. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about an interesting case. Uh, this goes back to Samuel Little. He's one of the most prolific serial killer that we've had in the United States. He was uh, in operation from about 1970 to 2005. He killed many, many women, almost all by strangulation. He was big in the Southeast, but also played a big role in killings in Los Angeles and in California. And uh, he's since died. He's uh, admitted to like 93 murders, something like that. But what's left in all of this and all of this aftermath is the LAPD still trying to identify at least 16 women. And it seems like they're hunting for ghosts. It's just so hard to link anything together. So, James, you wrote a piece about this because there's a couple of interesting things. Uh, the main investigator is retiring next month. As I mentioned, he's passed away. And it's just really hard to identify these people. So uh, tell us a little bit more about it, James. Sure. So what what is triggering this is, as you mentioned, Sam Little died at the very end of last year. And the Texas Ranger, who was able to elicit most of those confessions, the, 90, the 93 murders that he's claimed he committed, uh, he's, he's stepping down next month. So there are, you know, some of the original case detective who arrested him in Los Angeles, she is still on the job. But other than that, a lot of the key players in this case are, you know, as we said, either dead or uh, stepping away from police work. So what happened this morning is the FBI, in conjunction with the Texas Rangers, they released summaries of 31 of Little's confessions that have not been able to be corroborated by local law enforcement. And more than half of those are in Los Angeles. Little has claimed credit for about 20 killings in this area, three of which he was convicted of back in 2014, which put him in prison and started this whole situation. You know, the first domino that brought us to where we are now. Uh, Some of them have been found to have taken place in other cities near L.A., And that's the main problem is he's mostly claimed credit for killings between 1987 and 1996. And there have been just seismic shifts in the city. They drove him around uh, South L.A. is where he claimed to have operated mostly 
they drove him around the area about two years ago, but so many of the landmarks he might have recognized then are either no longer there. You know, uh, or, you know, if he if he said he killed somebody behind a strip mall, that might be an apartment complex now. Uh, he was not from California, although he had uh, committed numerous crimes here and killed or assaulted, ser- seriously injured multiple women. Uh, he didn't, you know, I don't think he really knew the difference between L.A., Long Beach, Compton, Inglewood. Uh, you know, there's a lot of areas that, that, that barrier, bar- barrier one another, overlap on one another, and he wouldn't know the difference. So they've had a lot of problems even, you know, searching through, even just for LAPD's sake. You know, they have 6,000 unsolved murders, something like that, in the time period he claimed he operated. And if they're not looking in the right city, there's nothing, there's no case in reality to match to these these confessions he right. gives where he normally paints a vague picture of a woman or maybe remembers their name or something they were wearing, but that's not going to help you looking for a crime scene, you know, 30 years later. So it's, it's a very it's a big uphill battle in a, in a, in a city this large uh, with this much time elapsed and with the jurisdictional overlap that you have in certain parts. And that's one of the interesting things about uh, the case with Little is that he at times has this extraordinary memory of these women as you mentioned, he would do drawings. He'd have uh, specific details about, like, you know, something behind a tree and buried here and buried there and, and all that. And he, so he'd have very specific things to point to. But as you mentioned, the landscape of the city changed, all sorts of things. It, it makes it hard to really link those things together. Right. And on top of everything else, uh, his M.O. was largely to he, – he had a type of victim he attacked. They were normally prostitutes, normally – black women. And unfortunately, that matched the MO of other serial predators operating in L.A. at the same time. Um, the, the grim sleeper, Lonnie Franklin Jr., uh, behaved in a similar manner, although he obviously didn't kill by strangulation. But other than that, you know, he, he was targeting similar women. There were other people, you know, Ellie, we all know L.A.'s infamous history with serial killers. There were other other people operating at the same time. Um, there also, he, well, he was arrested through DNA. Uh, DNA is not the magic bullet in this case that it normally is in a lot of others uh, because he was little was a bit of a bizarre case in that he killed for sexual gratification, but he normally did not actually sexually assault his victims. So he did not often leave the kind of DNA at a scene that has led to captures of other, you know, infamous serial predators in the state and around the nation. So yeah, a lot, a lot of the, 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 the ways you see some of these other marquee, serial predator cases go go down these days don't really apply yeah. to Little's case. Another thing uh, that uh, we point to is missing case files and evidence are another problem. That's why, you know, that's why they're putting these calls out there to see if it jogs anybody's memories, obviously in other jurisdictions, other cities. There was one, I guess, a sheriff who said that they think they possibly identified somebody in Roland Heights in another city, but they just can't link the evidence there. There's not enough forensic evidence there to be able to link them. And that's one of the other ongoing problems. Yeah, there was one like that. He's mentioned Compton in more than one confession, and I believe at the time he was operating, most of the time he was operating anyway, Compton had its own police department. The LA Sheriff's Department now has a contract to handle law enforcement activity in the city of Compton, but at the time that wasn't the case. Um, And you've also got the situation where it's not, um, every strangulation does not necessarily come across as a homicide, so there may be some of the women he killed, you know, given the situation described, given they may have been drug addicts there, you know, and this, this is a little bit um, speculating by the detectives more than backed up in fact, but the possibility exists that some of the, the women who he's, whose killings he's confessing to are not in a homicide file. So then the, 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 the departments are left to look through 
overdose cases, which are by any, any, any given year number in the thousands and thousands, it just becomes a, a needle in a very, very right. sad and blood-soaked haystack. Yeah, uh, we're talking about a L.A. County, but there's also Miami, Atlanta, New Orleans, Las Vegas, Cincinnati, other places where there are cold cases that they're looking to close, possibly. If anybody, I mean, has any information, wants to look up more, what, what can people do? Uh, the FBI has put out a tip line. They're asking anyone with any information or anything that their memories draws from these 31 cases to call, you know, 1-800-CALL-FBI. Uh, if you're in the L.A. area, the main agencies that have, been, that I believe are still looking for unsolved cases are the LAPD, the Sheriff's Department, or Inglewood Police. You probably want to call one of them. Uh, I believe the FBI has also released these these case summaries to a website, and we have most of them linked out from our main story on our website. So, right there are, and there are many jurisdictions beyond LA that have cases. They're just it's only one or two in most of these other places. But if if this is something yeah, any of your listeners are interested in trying to help out with, uh, that would just, it'd be worth it to take a, take a scan of the, the confession summaries. James Queeley, criminal justice reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A lot of people are having long COVID or long-term symptoms even when they had very mild initial infections. Joining us now is Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Pam. Well, I'm happy to be here. You wrote a very interesting article about uh, one patient's path to try to recover from long COVID through cognitive rehab. You know, that's one of the uh, ongoing mysteries of COVID-19 and how it affects certain people. You know, thankfully, a lot of people have mild cases. They seem to be getting milder as we have more vaccines. But there's been a lot of people that got hit especially hard. And then the lingering effects that were very confusing as to why they happened, why they were lingering for so long. Some people were experiencing symptoms months later. Uh, In this case, a whole year had gone by and this woman was still having these cognitive impairments. And uh, you got to follow her over the course of a few months to see what her therapy was like, how she improved. Pam, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, well, um, you know, I think you described the long COVID situation well. But one thing to note is that a lot of people are having long COVID or long term symptoms, even when they had very mild initial infections. So you have many more people um, grappling with these sort of symptoms of brain fog and um, uh, feeling extreme fatigue um, and um, a whole wide variety of of physical and cognitive symptoms. And some of them, many of them didn't actually end up having to be hospitalized for COVID itself. So it really is a mystery uh, about, you know, who is most at risk for this and when it's going to happen, how long it's going to happen, and all that sort of stuff. And with this story, what I wanted to try to do, I've written a lot about long COVID itself, and I was interested in trying to understand if there was anything that people were finding helpful for the symptoms um, as scientists try to, you know, sort of figure out what's going on. Is there anything that's helping people? So I uh, spent some time with um, Samantha Lewis. She's a 34-year-old woman in a suburb of Chicago, and um, she had been initially infected in October 2020, and 
you know, for just months, she has had a variety of symptoms, including um, memory loss, uh, brain fog, trouble uh, organizing. And this is a woman who, like many people with long COVID, um, had a very kind of high-functioning life beforehand. She had a full-time job, very demanding, detailed-oriented job. Um, she has um, an 11-year-old daughter who has uh, some special needs, autism, and she was managing all of that and, and working a very, very intense schedule. And all of a sudden, you know, after COVID, she she couldn't, you know, stay awake for more than a few hours. She was having trouble concentrating. She was assigning employees who worked for her, you know, three employees to the same task and not remembering that she had done that. Um, She had to drastically cut back her hours at work. Um, And so, you know, it was really um, a a frightening situation, but unfortunately a very representative situation. She ended up getting help at some point from Northwestern Memorial Hospital's Neuro COVID-19 clinic. This was in Chicago. Tell mm-hmm. me tell me about how she got there and then some of the early cognitive rehab that she started going through because it seems pretty basic, but that's where she was, where she couldn't operate normally anymore. Right, exactly. Um, so Northwestern's clinic is one of um, several that have sprung up around the country and theirs is really focused a lot on these neurological issues. And they have been seeing, I think they're up to about a thousand patients now from around the country. Some they see, you know, via telemedicine, some they see in person. They do these very intense neurological workups, these cognitive tests. When she uh, got there in uh, late March, you know, she was about six months or five or six months post-infection, she basically did um, so um, poorly on these cognitive tests that her score put her in a category that's called mild cognitive impairment, which is kind of like a pre-dementia category that we usually see in much older people. And um, so the neurologist there recommended this program that they call cognitive rehab. It is at a a, a rehabilitation center called the Ability Lab, um, which is also based in Chicago. And she went to one in the Chicago suburbs. And they have a long history there of working with patients who have had brain injuries or strokes or, um, you know, other types of um, uh, medical issues, and they do a mix of physical therapy, occupational therapy, which is kind of trying to figure um, how to, uh, you know, do your activities of daily, of daily living, you know, if right. whatever you aren't able to do, you know, being in that um, and and then he worked with a speech language pathologist who was doing a lot of memory exercises and a lot of things to try to have her focus. One of her main issues was that she, and this happens with people with memory problems, is that it takes you so long to remember something, your processing speed, as they call it, is so slow that you can get really distracted and then you have trouble paying attention to what it is that you were trying to do and then you forget. After all of this time that she started going through this therapy, uh, I mean, you got to see her kind of progress through some of this as well. Uh, where does she yeah. stand now? How is she doing? I, I 
I read, uh, at least on some of these scores, these tests that she was giving, at least she's testing on the higher end of those tests now. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I started uh, uh, watching her therapy soon after she started, which was late July. And I saw her, you know, do just the exercises that you were describing. And I can tell you she was working very hard um, and, you know, making those mistakes in, a, in just a very, it was very frustrating for her. Um, and then I visited her um, and attended in person a number of her therapy sessions in early October. And she had begun to improve. Um, she was able to, for example, you know, remember details from a story that had been read to her at the beginning of the session, that kind of thing. Um, she was able to uh, do more um, uh, advanced things with numbers like, you know, adding two to numbers, adding nine and subtracting four. She was very slow in some of those things, you know, slower than her education and age would suggest, but she was making progress. And then um, later this fall, she, you know, she got some good news. She did much better on cognitive testing. Um, she uh, has gradually, you know, done much better on the balance testing. And she actually uh, graduated from physical therapy a, a couple of weeks ago, which was very exciting for her. <laughs> right. um, so, you know, so she's she's still got a few more therapy sessions that she's, she's hoping to sort of finish up with that in January. She's one of the things that the therapy has done for her is that it's not only is she getting sort of these exercises, you know, when she's there and she also tries to practice them at home, but it's given her a lot of, you know, kind of strategies and workarounds and um, adaptations that she is using in her life. So the thing that struck me, you know, just you know, most dramatically when I was visiting her was that she has a has a card, a bright pink index card on her bathroom mirror that has nine steps to um, brush and floss her teeth. You know, things like wet brush, you know, put on toothpaste. <laughs> and she leaves it there because that's, you know, kind of the only way that she can be sure to remember, um, you know, exactly what to do in something so basic. Right. So she has those types of things all over her house. She's had a, a, a bunch of different adaptations at work for how to break up activities so she doesn't, you know, uh, so she doesn't get too, um, uh, she can't stare really at a computer for more than a, a short time. And, and so the therapists have helped her figure out ways to do that. And she thinks that she may always, or at least for a long time, have to use those adaptations, you know, so her, it has changed her life, right. even when gets more functional, she will be relying on these kinds of adaptations. Right. Um, and doctors say she may never fully recover, but, you know, on a hopeful note, she is doing, you know, certainly much better than she was. Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for your interest. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.